All right, let me just talk, say a little bit about what's coming around. Uh, we're going to do some frontline praying. And the way that we're going to do this is uh, we're going to take uh, between 9 o'clock on Friday night and is it 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon? I think it's 27 hours where we'd like to have a solid, talk about bathing our church in prayer and bathing our community and our world in prayer. We're going to have a solid prayer time. But the best way to do that is not I, but it's we. And so what we're going to ask you to do at the end of the service is to take a 15-minute block. You've heard sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, sweet 15 minutes of prayer, sweet 15 minutes of prayer. And to sign up, and we have a sheet out at the registration table, and if you'll just take a 15-minute block, and then in a minute I want to talk to you about some things you can pray about, but also here's some things on this list that you can pray in that 15-minute time period for. In fact, I doubt you could get to everything if you really did it seriously. So uh, uh, there's a place on the top when you go out and write down what your 15-minute segment will be for you to record it to remind yourself of that as well. And uh, one of the reasons that we're doing this is because this Saturday, um, our church is going to probably be voted into being a part of ECO, the denomination. We have submitted our application and, and the Presbyterian meeting is coming up. And so we thought that this would be a way as you're praying, I didn't put this on the list, but if you could be praying for our church and our relationship with, with uh, this community, this denomination, and uh, they're meeting between 10 and two o'clock. That's why we took the prayer time right up to two. Uh, and so you can be praying for them as well. It would be really cool, our elders are all going to this meeting to be able to say our congregation is praying for, for, for this meeting uh, all during the time as well. All right, if you got your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 17. And if you get John 17, you can just uh, put your finger there and then go back to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to play Freddy Flipper today. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things you're going to notice in the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew chapter 6... At verse 13, the prayer ends, and lead us not into temptation. This is on page 678. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised with the next line of the prayer going, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But you'll notice that it's missing from the text there. So here's a little uh, a New Testament uh, class for you. When you're translating, you always go back and you use the oldest manuscripts. And they would be the most reliable in terms of, of as far back as you can go, that, that would probably be your most accurate manuscripts. And then you have scribes who are scribing along. You've heard the story perhaps of the guy who was working in a monastery and they were making copies of the Bible. But after they'd make a copy, they'd put that one aside and they'd make a copy off the copy. And then they'd put that aside and make a copy off the copy off the copy. 
And so this young priest says to the, to the Monsignor, Father, it would seem to me that we should make copies off of one copy so there'd be less chance of error in terms of how we copy. Well, then for hours, the Monsignor disappeared and they couldn't figure out where he is. So the priest goes down into the basement of the monastery and there the Monsignor is banging his head against the wall and he's going, it said, celebrate, celebrate. Uh, <laughs> instead of celibate. But uh, <laughs> so the point is that, uh, that one of the things when the King James Version was written, and as my grandmother used to say, if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, the King James is good enough for me. But, uh, but the point was the manuscript which was used to translate the King James Version since then, you may have heard of the Qumran community and where this little boy was one day throwing rocks into a cave and all of a sudden he heard some pots that kind of broke. And when they went up and found out, they found these scrolls of the Old Testament and New Testament that were in this, uh, in this cave that had been put there by the Essene community. And uh, so they now, in this discovery, found manuscripts that were older than the manuscripts that was used to translate the King James Version. And so they would be, these are the manuscripts, this, uh, these original manuscripts are what were used for the New International Version, the New American Standard Version, the New English Version. They took their translation off of the older manuscripts. Now, you say, well, what happened that in the, in the King James one, they used, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The reason they did was they had doxologies in the early church. Some of you, if you were raised in the church, you might remember when they used to take the offering, everybody would stand as the ushers came forward and we sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That was a doxology. And, and in the early church, they would use doxologies when they, would, when they would get to the conclusion of a lot of things. And the doxology that was used in the early church, and this is all documented, is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I might end my sermons every week by saying, uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You may have heard pastors sometimes. I, I had a pastor when I was growing up as a boy. And uh, every Sunday he started off his sermon May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And so that was just like a, something. And so the thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory was a doxology that was used in the early church for that respect. Now, we've been talking about the Lord's Prayer, and I want to talk about this kingdom power glory thing. But I want to use a different text to help you understand it, because, you know, it's interesting, the disciples came to Jesus. One of them said, would you teach us to pray? And so this is really not the Lord's Prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. This is Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. But Jesus did have a Lord's Prayer. And that prayer was found in John chapter 17. And so if you turn back over to John 17, page 754, as we come into this uh, frontline prayer thing that we're going to do this week. One of the questions that you would ask is, well, what, what do you think we should pray for? What should we pray about? 
You've heard of the prayer of Jabez. Well, this is the prayer of Jesus. And it's interesting that if you go all throughout the Gospels, you only get little snippets. And this is the only place that's recorded of what Jesus actually prayed. And so I think, except for those one-liners, one scholar suggests that this may be the most important chapter in all of the Bible. Ever since the 16th century, what theologians have called this prayer is the high priestly prayer. And the reason they call it that is because Jesus is the high priest. <laughs> so there are two basic functions and responsibilities in the job description of a priest. And this, this, is, this might be new revelation to some of you. The high priest was supposed to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to, to, to sacrifice for their sins. The second thing that he was supposed to do is he was supposed to pray for the people. And whenever the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would have this like uh, breastplate that had gems that, that were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he'd also have a little stole that would come over him that was inscribed in there, the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you go into the Holy of Holies to pray, you're not going to forget what you're supposed to pray about because it's right there on your chest and it's right there over your shoulders. And so that was the job of the high priest to pray for people. Now, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that the priest, he offered sacrifices for the sins of the people, and yet we describe Jesus as the high priest. He is the sacrifice for our people. And so he's praying for his people as the high priest here in John 17. Now, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says this. Do you not know that you are a royal priesthood describing Christians? So here's a new discovery for some of you. Did you know you're a priest? You're not a high priest, but you're a priest. And as such, you have a job description. And the job description is twofold if you're a priest. One is to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, and the other is to pray for people. Now here's the interesting thing. You obviously can't offer sacrifices for people, but here's what you can do. You can point people to who the sacrifice is. And we call that evangelism. So one of, the, one of your roles as a priest is to point people to who the sacrifice is. And then the second responsibility is to pray for people. Now, you may have heard this expression before, intercessory prayer. And if you look up the word to intercede, it means to petition or to beseech God on behalf of other people. So if you're a Christ follower, you're a priest. And if you're a priest, you're an intercessor. And so what should you intercede for on behalf of your family and your friends? What do you really pray about? And so John 17 gives us a few, few uh, clues. The first thing is this, you should pray for their protection. Look at John 17, starting at verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for them, for those you have given me, that they are yours, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, obviously, he's referring to Judas Iscariot right there. So 
the first thing that we need to pray for is for people's protection. And uh, if you really look through that, there's several times it mentions protection and several times it mentions the word, word world. Now, you have probably prayed protection prayers a lot in your life. Uh, when you pray protection prayers, you pray for protection from loss of job, protection from the spread of cancer, protection from accidents on the road, protection from, well, if you were a kid, the playground bully. And these are not bad prayers to pray. But I want you to look again at what Jesus says. He says he wanted his friends to be protected from what? Can anybody know? Be like Boo Arnold. <laughs> Interactive. What did he want them to be protected from? I heard somebody. The evil one? Yeah. But he says the world. If you read through the whole prayer, 26 verses here in this prayer of Jesus, 17 times the word world pops up. It's the most dominant word in the prayer. And when Jesus used the expression world, he's not necessarily talking about the vastness of humanity. He's talking about the rebelliousness of humanity. He's not talking about world in terms of bigness. He's talking about world in terms of badness. And if you go back to the prologue of John's gospel, remember it says he was in the world, but the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. He came unto his own, but they received him not. And so the world rejected him. Over in John 3, 19, it says, this is the verdict that light has come into the world, but they prefer darkness over light. And so John, Jesus tells his followers, listen, uh, I want you to be protected from the world. Because the world is hostile toward Christ. The world is opposed to those who follow Jesus. The world tempts us to, believe, to, to, to sin. The world calls into question God's moral standards. The world tells people that there are many saviors and not just one savior. It's the world that tells believers that your faith is a private matter and it should be kept out of the public square. It's the world that pressures us into keep packing our calendars with more and more activities so that we have little time to think about eternal priorities. It's the world that encourages our kids to pursue $1,000 prom nights and designer clothes and the latest gossip and you name it so we get too preoccupied to be uh, focused on God. The world is no friend of Jesus. A couple months ago, a friend of mine from my former church in, in uh, Michigan and I were talking on the phone, and he said, well, what's it like out there? And I said, the people in my church are far more committed than they were in the church back in Kalamazoo. He said, you're kidding me. He said, you just assumed in California. I said, listen, anybody who shows up on Sunday morning at Water's Edge is going against the current. You go to church in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and you pull out of your driveway, everybody's pulling out of their driveway to go to church. You pull out of your driveway in California to go to church, you are going against the grain, against the culture. And so it takes far greater commitment in California to be a believer in Christ, I think, than to be a cultural Christian back in the Midwest. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, remember what the, remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the way J.B. Phillips says it. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your mind from within. And so that's the first thing that Jesus prays for, that, that we would be protected from the world. And I hope you understand the damage that the world can do to your family and to your friends. 
You know, it's more destructive ultimately than maybe a disease or a, an accident or even a, a, a personal trial. On the night that Jesus was going to be portrayed, you remember that uh, he said to his disciples, I want you to stay awake and pray. And he went forward and he came back and, and they had fallen asleep. And then he said an interesting thing to Peter. He said, Peter, he said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, and later on you will return. And so remember Peter, he denies Christ three times, but later on he becomes the foundation of the church. Uh, Jesus had prayed for his protection. What's the difference? He prayed for his protection. And so I just want to encourage you that as you're praying, he says, I pray for them, Jesus says, but I'm not praying for the world but for those you've given me, they are yours. And let me encourage you to pray that God would protect your family and your friends. That's one thing you can pray about. How do you remember to do that? Maybe make a list. Have their names. Write, write their names in the Bible. Put it on your day timer. Maybe have something on your desk or put it on your mirror in the, in the bathroom. Wherever you have a few minutes each day, you can pray. Just make it a habit to choose three or four names and just daily pray for those people. Sometimes you might use the spontaneous way. You know, you just say, and I've done this before, I say, God, if you would just put them on my mind, I'll pray for them. In fact, I met a lady a couple of years ago at the Bel Air Family Camp, and she said that she uses every red light as a, as, a, as a moment to pray for somebody. And she says, God, if you put them on my mind, I'll pray for them right now. And so whoever she thinks about, she just prays for them right at that moment. And so, so you can be a little spontaneous and... Uh, I've had that experience. I might have shared with you years ago. I had a friend who, for some reason, he came to my mind. Several months later, I was, I was actually with my mom and dad. We were out in Palm Springs, and we decided to go up to, to Forest Home to see where I had worked. And, and a friend of mine, Bob Craning, who was the director of the camp, we got there. We found out that he had had a heart attack. They said, hadn't you heard? He had a heart attack. And, and I was, I had no idea. But I can trace back, I can't tell you specifically to the day, but I can trace back to the week that was about three or four months earlier at that time that, that had, I had been prompted, Bob's name had come to my mind, and I think God's spirit prompted me to pray for him. And I think that that's one of the things that God will do. He will bring people to your mind, and then that's your, your signal, I should pray for those people. Okay? And then a third way I've learned is... Uh, uh, Okay, that, well, that's enough for, uh, on that. So people need our prayers. Our spouses need them for protection. Our kids need them. Our friends need them. Your church needs them. And we're priests, and it's our job as priests to pray for people. Now, the second thing in this prayer is we need to intercede for their sanctification. Now, listen, I know that that sounds like a very holy biblical word, but listen to what Jesus says starting at verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too 
may be truly sanctified. Sanctification means this, to be set apart for a special use, for God's special purposes. And friends, I hope you realize that, that this is the reason that Jesus died for, for us. Some of you think forgiveness was the end goal. The end goal is not just so that you'd be forgiven, but that you could fulfill God's ordained purposes for your life. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. And we've all been able to quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by faith you've been saved through grace. It's, it's not of works lest any man should boast. But we forget the very next verse which says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God has a purpose for us, and he prayed specifically for, for these, in fact, for us, if you want to be technical about it, that they would be sanctified, that they would be passionately committed to God's purposes. Now, uh, as we pray for other people's sanctification, let me just say a couple words. First of all, about this. First of all, I think that requires courage. And uh, obviously Jesus doesn't use this word, but when he says the world is going to hate them, (laughs) it's going to take courage if we're going to stay in the world. And so maybe it takes courage in Sudan or Bangladesh or Iraq or Pakistan to be a believer, but it sure doesn't seem like it takes very much courage to pursue Christ here in the United States. But I'll tell you what, I have some friends who years ago had a son who was an exceptional athlete. And once you know it, their baseball team got involved in these Sunday tournaments, and so they were going to make a decision, is it going to be God or baseball? God or baseball? And as a family, they made the decision it was going to be God. So their son couldn't play on the Sunday games that, uh, that they were playing. Well, you talk about courage for this kid, <laughs> you know, to go against the grain in that respect. And uh, already... Uh, you know, he's faced with uh, uh, an incredible thing. He's a, a remarkable young man, by the way. But they decided that, uh, that this was the way they were going to go. Uh, Kathy and I have a very close friend named Chris Galanis. Chris is a vice president of a company that he has an office in Chicago, Philadelphia, and Dallas. He's in this Philadelphia office, and the lady in the meeting that he's in has a heart attack. So they get the paramedics in, they get her all taken care of, get her out of the thing. So now Chris is restarting the meeting, and he says, why don't we just take a minute and pray for her? So two days later, he gets called by the human resources department of the company that he's the vice president of, and he had violated company policy by bringing religion into the workplace. And he got reprimanded and, and written up for this. We'll talk about courage to go against the way our society is. Uh, the world stands against Christ's followers. And we live in a culture that doesn't want to hear about a savior, that doesn't want to hear about absolute standards of right and wrong morally, that doesn't want to hear about God's boundaries around sexuality, that doesn't want to you know, hear certain things and wants to muzzle the efforts of, of those who would represent Christ, I think. So as we pray for others, let's pray that people will have courage. And I think we especially need to pray that for our kids. And we need to pray that for parents who have kids because it takes courage in raising kids. 
Because sometimes it's no fun being a Christ-honoring parent when all the other moms and dads are letting their kids do whatever. And you're always feeling like the bad guy. And so uh, that's, I pray for all you parents to have tough skin. And I hope you'll pray for me in that respect as well. Put me on your prayer list. There's a second aspect of sanctification. I think it requires character. In fact, the very word sanctification is a synonym in the Bible with the word holiness. And holiness is just another way of saying Christ-likeness. And so when we pray for others that they would be sanctified, what we're praying is we're praying that God would shape their character to be more and more like Christ. We're praying that they might be more loving, more self-controlled, more pure, more patient, more generous. We're praying that people would be more, you know, have more of the, the Christ-like character, specifically to be, in fact, that's what Paul says, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's his purpose in our lives. So it makes me curious as to what other people are praying for me <laughs> in terms of character. And the third thing about sanctification entails that we need to have a sense of calling. Back in verse 13, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Jesus is sending the world, the, the, his followers into the world for a purpose. A few verses earlier, Jesus said, I'm not asking you, Father, that you take them out of the world. I don't want them to be of the world. Years and years ago, we were at the Homestead restaurant on Ocean Grove, New Jersey with my dad. I'm looking back at my mom because that was a family memory of the clickers to get us seated and and I remember dad reached for salt shaker to put some salt on his fish and he stopped and he looked at me and he said, isn't that interesting? This fish has been in the water, the salt water, its whole life. And I'm about to put salt on it. Because even though it was in the salt water, it wasn't of the water. And I think that's what it means to be in the world but not of it. That we can swim in it without letting it permeate our character in terms of who we are. He says, I don't want them to be of the world, to be characterized by the traits of the world, but they've got to be in the world. He says, I don't want you to take them out. I want you to, I'm sending them into the world. And there are a number of heroes in scripture that occasionally prayed that God would take them out of the world. And they just got so doggone tired of going upstream and against the world's downstream current. Moses prayed, God, take me home. God said, nope. Elijah says, remember the time after the confrontation with the prophets of Baal? He said, I just want to die. Beam me up, Scotty. God said, no. The prophet Jonah, self-pity, sitting under a gourd outside Nineveh, you know, take me home, God. And God said, Jonah, there are so many lost people out there that need to know the message. You get going. And so suck it up, Jonah. And I think there's times when, when uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get exasperated. And you just say, is it worth the fight? Jesus said, I'm praying that you will fulfill your purpose and your calling in the world. The word send is another one that's a theme in this, in this prayer in John. The Father sent me, the Father sent me, the Father sent me, Jesus says. And then occasionally he adds that line, and that's why I'm sending you. You are ambassador of Christ. You have the job of spreading the word. And you're the one that can connect people in a personal relationship with God. And you're the one that can participate in redirecting people's eternities. All right, finally, intercede for their relationships. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and you've loved me even as you, uh, that you've loved them even as you have loved me. Interesting, he says, I pray not only for them, but those who will believe through them. If you really think about it, Jesus was praying for you and me that night. Because <laughs> we believed through their message. And so it's amazing that uh, you can look back 2,000 years, and what's he praying for? He's praying for our oneness. I couldn't think about helping this when I, or thinking about this when I was thinking about certain occasions when Kathy and I would go out on a date, we'd have a babysitter. And the last instructions that we would give to our kids were, would you just try to get along while we're gone? <laughs> you know. And, and you know that eerie thing if you're a parent and you've gone out with the kids standing there and they're kind of smiling and waving. <laughs> and you just, you're just fearful of what's going to happen as soon as you drive around the corner in terms of you know, what's going to go on in that house. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, I pray that they get along with each other. And, and that's the conclusion of his prayer. Lord, help them get along. And that's the way that the world is going to see that there's something different about them. So pray for relationships. And so as you intercede for others, pray that they will love and serve and, and be faithful to their spouses. And pray that they will be hardworking, conscientious employees. And pray that they will be gracious and encouraging to their bosses. And pray that they would be good parents. And pray that they would be obedient kids. And pray that they would be genuine and loyal and caring and hospitable friends. And so as we pray for others' relationships, let me recommend that we keep in mind that God uses relationships to shape people into Christ-likeness. He's more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. Several years ago, I read a book called Sacred Marriage, and it said, what if God's purpose for your marriage was not to make you happy, but to make you holy? Your prayer isn't simply, God, help them to be happy again, but God, would you use this to mark them? Would you shape their character? Would you use this to give them greater grace and greater patience? God, would you, would you use this to give them the ability to forgive? And you can pray that for anybody, a struggling boss, just that they might experience more life of Christ. Another category of intercession is that they would have an awareness of God's presence. What I mean by that is that they would experience God's presence in, in their lives. Here's the closing part of the, the prayer, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. I don't think there's a more warmer verse in the entire New Testament than, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. 
He's talking a little about a foretaste of what it's going to be like when he concludes that prayer. In the meantime, I just want you, them to experience me in their lives, their, my presence. The word known pops up several times there. And that happens by getting into God's word. It happens by being in fellowship with other believers in a small group. It happens by, by discovering your spiritual gift and then serving Christ. It happens as we participate in, in worship so that we don't lose track of, of our awareness of God's presence. So if you want to know how to pray, those are some of the things that I think you could pray about. If you're a Christ follower, you're a priest. If you're a priest, you're an intercessor. If you're an intercessor, then you have a responsibility, but it comes with a huge privilege. And the privilege is you get to partner with God in what he's doing in other people's lives. And I think what a rush it is when you see God working in other people's lives as a result of your prayers as well. Well, that's enough for today. Let's pray together. Lord God, I want to pray for my friends here. If just several of us took this to heart and we started lifting more prayers to you than we've ever done before on behalf of our friends and our family and on behalf of this church, if we started praying, not the trite stuff, but if we started praying this John 17 kind of stuff on their behalf, what incredible things might you do? I think you'd shake us. I think it would shake our families. I think it would shake this church. So help us to get started. And we can't apply everything that we've heard this morning, but help us to know where to begin. And may this week be better than last week in terms of the interceding that we do. Thanks for the privilege of praying for our family and for our friends and for the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>